chapter 6 and verse 25. The Sermon on the Mount. And this is a particular place where I remember as a girl covenanter a few years ago, um, having to learn this, to recite it for a competition. And I started to look at it this week and thought, um, I think age has got me, I don't think I could do it now. So I'm going to read it. Verse 25, do not worry. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendour, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, well, what shall we eat? Or, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God bless his word to each one of us. Let's pray. Thank you, Ruth. Good morning, everybody. It really is good to be with you, and we appreciate a very kind welcome that you've given to us. We're good friends of uh, John and Jackie Woodhouse, so we've heard quite a lot about you, and in spite of that, we still came. <laughs> I studied with John back in the 70s. We were at theological college together. And then our, our paths went in different directions. And then they came back together when we invited him and Jackie to be chaplains at Morelands. And they did a great job over the last five years. Just beat us to retirement uh, by uh, about 12 months. Even though he's younger than me. Not my better in any way. But it's good to be with you. We're going to look at the passage that Ruth brought to us a little bit earlier. So if you've got a Bible uh, or you want to follow it on your device, you imagine that 10 years ago, people wouldn't know what a device was, but if you could just open it up, I think it's good because I'm going to be looking at the verses that are there and seeking to explain them. One particular verse is verse 33. That's the one, I guess, that's the kind of the text that I want to focus teaching on. Seek first his kingdom, says Jesus, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We've had the joy of serving God in different places over the years. Uh, we're in our, uh, well, I won't tell you, but a lot, lot, lot of years we've spent in ministry. And we've pastored churches in 
suburban areas, a city centre. But just before we came to Moorlands, we passed at an international church in Geneva, an English-speaking international church with about 60 different nationalities. And we used to have uh, interns that would come and work with us for maybe a year, two years, uh, as part of their discipleship, uh, a break in their education, or sometimes post-university. And uh, I want to tell you about Esther. Esther Monfalcone uh, is Italian, you can guess with a name like that, she's, she's got to be Italian. Esther had been with us, I think, by then for about two years and was coming to an end of her contract. And I knew from various prayer meetings we'd been in, she was quite anxious about what God had for her next. And there were various options. She could go on and study. She could go back to Italy. Um, she wanted to learn more about the Bible, and so therefore the thought of theological training was up there somewhere. And um, we've just been praying for her and uh, asking that God would make it clear and then one Sunday after church, uh, when we were meeting for, for coffee, uh, I think it was summertime, so we'd spilled out into the church car park. She came over to me with a big beam on her face, saying, I've really heard from God this week. And she wanted to share with me as the pastor how God had answered her prayers. So I said, tell me about it. And she told me that she'd been at a, a prize giving, an end of year prize giving at the international school just over the border from where we were. We lived on the French side, this school's on the Swiss side. Uh, she'd been mentoring a, a young uh, lady who had come to the end of her, her studies and the family was so pleased at the way that Esther had invested in the, their daughter, they invited her as the, the guest. And she said, when I got there, she said, I'll be honest, I wasn't feeling very excited here because School prize givings, graduations, are sort of, they're all right, but you know, they're a bit formal. But she said the principal of the school, when he stood up, said, we've had a change of program today. We were going to have, mentioned the name of a gentleman on the board, giving uh, the farewell address to our students. But a friend of mine has just flown into Geneva, and very graciously, our board member has stood back so that this friend of mine can speak to you all, and I want you to welcome Michael Douglas. That's the Hollywood star. Do, do you go to the cinema? Well, you know. <laughs> so you know who Michael Douglas is. If you're old enough, you remember his dad, Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Okay. And uh, do you remember his wife, Catherine Zeta Jones? And if you don't know who she is, see a doctor. He won't be dead. <laughs> anyway. But I'm, I'm following Esther's conversation, and I'm thinking, where is this leading? You know, she heard from God, and she's telling me about a school graduation. So I said, come on, Esther, tell me what happened. She said, well, Michael Douglas stood up, and, and he said something. She said, he, he only spoke for a short time, much shorter than your sermons, she said. Um, but but he, he said something that just resonated with me. He said to the students, You've had a good education. Uh, your parents have invested in that education. When you go on from here, whatever you choose to do next, you, you will not, if you do the right things, you will not have a difficulty in making your life a success because you've had the privilege of a good education. But he said that's not the real issue. The real issue is not will you be successful, 
But will your life be significant? Not about being successful, but will your life be significant? Let's just park Esther's story over here for a minute. And I will come back to it, because she did go on to explain a little bit more about how God used that phrase to challenge her. Ruth said just now that reading that we took from Matthew 6, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, and what we know as, as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a few months ago, we were at the location on the banks of Galilee, we took a, a party of Christians who, who went out to Israel for 12 days, and we stood there, and you can see it's like a natural amphitheatre, where Jesus stood and spoke the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Someone once said, <clears throat> a better description of the Sermon on the Mount is to call it Jesus' Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because you cannot understand the Sermon on the Mount unless you have an encounter with the Spirit of God. It's not like uh, when I was at school, we used to have assemblies that told us to be nice to old ladies and look after pets and help people over the road who are struggling. That kind of let's be good and nice to people. That's not the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto of the kingdom. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be blessed of those who mourn? It means living a new life by the power of the Spirit within us. And at this part of the sermon, Jesus touches on the issue of worry and anxiety. And we know about that, don't we? Jesus is right on target in talking about that because from our very earliest days, we worry. Some of us are, are built to worry, it seems. You know, we worry when we haven't got anything to worry about. Don't notice the person next to you when I just said that. But, you know, some are more anxious than others. But we know that anxiety is part of the human condition. Um, I can remember worrying about going up to big school. Uh, we worry about making friends. We worry about being accepted by others. Uh, we, we worry as young people about the kind of trainers that we're wearing and the clothes that we're wearing. and All kinds of things will, uh, will absorb our thinking. Students at the college where we teach worry about their studies, their student loans, their placements. We had graduation on Friday. <clears throat> One of the things that we did was we thanked God as our students graduated for all those worries that they had that God had met, that God had answered. Did they have enough money to get through? Yes, they did. Were they going to pass so that some of them struggle with dyslexia and other learning disabilities? Were they going to make it? Yes, they did. And it was just so good on Friday to gather together in the Priory Church in Christchurch to sing God's praise and to give testimony to what God had done. But behind it all, yes, we were honest enough to say we worried. <coughs> and we worry at different points in our life, don't we? About different things. Today, I know if we went round the congregation here and asked about the worries we've got about our family, our health, our future, our pension, all those things, we could mess up in a, a great big bonfire and say, look, Lord, they're, they're, they're all lies. I heard a story about um, a lady in the community who reached 100. 
and they sent the BBC radio reporter to see her and uh, he did a little interview that he, they put on the news that evening and they said, he said to her, you're a hundred years of age, that's a wonderful, wonderful age to be. You must have seen a lot of changes. Yes, she said, she talked about the changes in her life. His last question was this, well, a hundred, do you have any worries? And she said, well, I did to them a week ago, but I managed to get my son into an old people's home. <laughs> <coughs> and that has lifted a great weight off my life. And when I heard that, I thought, yeah, even a hundred, there are issues for worries. So what does Jesus say about that in this passage? He talks about looking, and he uses uh, four directions in which he encourages us to look. Look around. Look up, look within, and look ahead. Look around. What, what was that about? Well, I said to you, he, he was preaching by uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. He was on a, a mountainside, a hillside. And it's natural for him to point to, as you see there, about the birds. They were flying around in the sky. They were coming down onto the ground and looking for food. To point to the wild flowers. These were uh, beautifully manicured gardens that, that we enjoy, but the wild flowers that were growing on the <coughs> hillside. And Jesus points to what was around in that open air theatre. So look at the birds, look at the flowers. Those birds, they're fed, they survive, and the flowers. Not even Solomon arrayed in all of his glorious splendor. So splendid the Queen of Sheba made that massive journey to see him. He said, the flowers, you, you, you can't replicate that. I don't know about you, but I found this last summer. The, the world of nature has come alive, maybe because we had so much lovely weather. But living where we do, in the, in the uh, parkland of, of Moorlands, the birds... The wildflowers, it's been absolutely astounding just to look at God's creative ability. Jesus said, look around, look at the world that God has made. Look at this time of the year, the, the autumn colours. Some of us love art, but we can never quite get to capture the beauty that you see in the autumn leaves. And then Jesus says, but look up. He points beyond creation. And he points to God and he poses a question, verse 26. Are you not much more valuable than they? So he looks at nature, birds and flowers, and he says, but in God's eyes, are you not much more valuable than they? Human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation. And then notice... Twice, he uses the language of relationship. Verse 26 and verse 32, he talks about your heavenly Father. That's one of the astonishing things about the teaching of Jesus, that he brought God much nearer. For the Jew, God was transcendent, out there, beyond us, totally other. But Jesus talked about when you pray, pray the Lord, our Father. And here in terms of anxiety and need, he talks about your Heavenly Father. Now not all of us have had the privilege of having a good dad, a good father in our families. 
Some of us have, have known maybe violence and abuse in the home. Some of us have had a dad who was very unreliable. Some of us may not even know who our dad was. But notice in the Sermon on the Mount, more than once, Jesus talks about your heavenly Father being perfect. So whatever our experience of a father in our family, we have a father who is perfect, a father who cares. And Jesus is saying to us, if God can look after creation, how much more is he going to care for you because you matter to him? It was uh, Paul who writes in 2 Corinthians about God being the Father of all mercies. It's a lovely little phrase there, isn't it? God is the Father of all mercies, the one who brings gifts to us. One of the reasons that a spiritual discipline of saying grace before a meal is it reminds us of God's goodness to us. It reminds us, I can remember as a child, we used to sing grace. Um, a bit difficult if you were at McDonald's, but all good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. Then thank the Lord, then thank the Lord for all his love. It, it's a kind of stop and pause and reflect and say everything that we have comes from God's hand. Look up. And then the third thing is look within. And I find this really challenging. I've got to be honest with you. When we find ourselves consumed with worry and anxiety, what does it say about our level of faith? Look at verse 32. Jesus says, for the pagans, that is the, the people who have no real time for God, knowledge of God, understanding of God, the people who want to get by by their own resources, they run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. What's the difference between me as a follower of Jesus and the person I live next door to who's got no time for God, no real understanding of God? What's the difference? How do I respond when the gas bill comes in? What's, what's the practical application of me being a follower of Jesus? We started this year, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year we always have our sort of plans set and what's going to happen and, uh, you know, we, we look ahead into the year as the new year turns. We've had a year this year that all of our plans have been turned upside down, various ways. We face some big, big challenges, some of the biggest we've known in our lives. We've been of sadness and loss. And at various points along the way, we've come back to this truth. What's the difference in being a follower of Jesus? What difference does it make when we're buffeted by things that have come into our lives unplanned, when we experience loss? How do we deal with it? And Jesus challenges us, and he says, you know, as a follower, we need to live differently. We need to put our trust in him and live out that trust in, in front of a watching world. Ruth picked up in the prayers that we live in a culture that is riven with anxiety. 
And uh, the media thrives on jeopardy. Have you noticed that? Uh, you know, when you put on the news, oh, we've got some more bad news for you tonight. You know, oh, what be? We, need, we needed that. But a, a lot of it is, is relative. If uh, I find that my petrol bill's gone up, yeah, that's a challenge. Making ends meet, that's a real challenge. But as we reminded ourselves in our prayers, for folk in Ukraine and Pakistan who've lost everything, who've lost loved ones, they can't see an end to that. that that sort of puts a perspective on it. I remember years ago, when I first went to India, being reminded of something, I think it was through Tear Fund, I, I heard a little phrase that said, I used to complain about the colour of my shoes till I met a man who didn't have any legs. It's perspective. I was reading uh, earlier today, Psalm 42. And reminding myself of how Psalm 42 and the next one, Psalm 43, encourages us all to talk to ourselves. That's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Doesn't talking to yourself sound a bit strange? Actually, I do it anyway in life. <coughs> the older I get, get where do I put my keys, where do I put my phone? No one ever answers, but I'm just talking to myself. But the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you so disquieted? Put your hope in God, for I will yet again praise him. He's talking to himself. Why are you cast down? Why are you allowing this spiral of anxiety to get you lower and lower? Put your trust in God. Put your hope in him, for you will yet again praise him. He will provide. Then the last direction to look is looking ahead. I find it fascinating as I reflect on these verses that Jesus isn't just saying, don't worry. <laughs> uh, if you've got friends like that, aren't they annoying? They really are. When you are worried and someone just says, stop worrying, don't worry, it doesn't help. But Jesus gives us a very practical thing to do. Verse 33, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Let's just break that down. Seek. That implies making a consistent effort, a lifetime pursuit, a way of living. Seek after God's kingdom. Seek after what God wants to do in that situation, to glorify his name and to help you to grow as a disciple. Seek actively. Pursue it with all that you've got. Seek first. In other words, that's the priority. When we were newlyweds, 48 years ago, I've got that right, haven't I? Yeah, good. <laughs> we made the mistake of when it came to our financial giving for God's work, we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll sort of get through the month, and whatever's left at the end of the month, uh, we'll, we'll give us our, our giving to God's work. And we, we realised pretty soon that, that that wasn't gonna that wasn't right. And so we changed the way round and we, we decided to make it the priority in our giving. That God's work, the things that we were supporting and involved in our church, that would come first. And here's the miracle. We found out that although we had less, we ended up having more. Just kingdom economics. That's how it works. Not this isn't a, you know uh, 
name it and claim it, or as I call it, snatch it and grab it. It's not that. This, this is a biblical principle. Honour God, and he'll honour you. Seek first the kingdom. Not adding on, you know, what if, if it's all right and not raining, I'll go to church. Or if there are other things that I can give money to, I'll, I'll do that. But actually saying, God, we put you first actively to show you that we embrace this kingdom principle. Seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness. That's an interesting word. In other words, it is about living with a pure life, with clean hands, a pure heart, walking in the light with God, seeking day by day to put into practice the things that we know are right, confessing when we get it wrong, asking God to grow the fruit of his spirit within us. Jesus here is giving us a discipleship verse, not a little uh, mechanical phrase that we can use when, when we're in need, but this is about discipleship. Seek first God's kingdom. And that promise, all these things will be given to you as well. Not everything that you want, because we, we'd be like kids in the sweet shop then, wouldn't we? But everything that we need. Isn't that an amazing promise? Isn't that a, a wonderful truth to take hold of in a time of recession and uncertainty? Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. At Morelands, um, on Friday, we were honouring people who have achieved their degrees, BAs and MAs, in uh, applied theology. And we often get asked the question, What's applied theology? You know, what's the difference between theology and applied theology? And the answer is, so what? Because that's what applied theology is. So what does it mean? You understand the book of Isaiah, and you understand about the relevance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you understand the doctrine of soteriology and pneumatology and all the other ologies. But applied theology says, what does that mean? What does that mean in the context that we're living in? It means we apply God's word to our lives. We work it through. So, to do that here, talk to our Heavenly Father who cares for us more than birds and flowers and tell him our concerns. I find it easy to share my concerns with other people but not to spend so much time on my own with God's talking to him. Share my needs. Share my concerns with others where it's appropriate. There are times, aren't there? We have friendships, we have people that we've walked the journey with. And sometimes it's good just to be able to say, well, would you pray for me this week? Can I ask you to hold me before God because I've got a big hospital appointment on Tuesday? Whatever it may be. Third thing, identify ways in which we can help ourselves. And that means perhaps spending time each day listening to God through scripture. What a difference that makes to so many of us. Being reassured by the promises of God and hearing his voice. The spiritual discipline of gathering with others because we find strength in one another. The discipline of actually saying, I'm not going to spend the next 
two or three hours getting myself worked up over that issue. But I really am going to bring it to God and leave it with God. And I'm going to choose today. Because we can't control our circumstances, but we can control our attitude to them. And I can choose what my attitude is going to be. You know that. When you, you go off to work in the morning or you start your day doing whatever you've planned to do, I can choose my attitude that day. And then, of course, following what Jesus says here in Matthew 6, 33, determining to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. I was reminded of that early this week. We went to a Thanksgiving service on Wednesday for a wonderful Christian lady who went to be with the Lord at the age of 97. And the church in North London, where the Thanksgiving service was held, was just along the road from the college where John Woodhouse and I studied back in the 70s. And that church had a year-long mission. They did all kinds of events for families, for children, for young people. Massive mission. And the mission was called God First. That was it. And all over the town, uh, cars had bumper stickers, uh, people had badges, in shop windows and in houses, these posters would go up just simply saying, God First. And it was the church saying in their community, that's what we've decided to do, and we invite you to do the same. God first. And that's really what the summary of this verse 33 is about. Put God and his kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you as well. You thought I'd forgotten about Esther? I hadn't. You see, at that point, Esther had an invitation to go back to Italy and to pioneer uh, youth work with an organisation called Youth for Christ, working in schools and universities. And this had been put to her as a possibility for, after her time as an intern, to go back home to do that work. But the issue was she had no funding. She would have to probably take a couple of part-time jobs and look to God in faith for what she needed. And on the other side, there was this lure of being able to maybe go off and study, States or in, in the UK. And she said, I really realised when I heard that phrase, do you want to be successful or significant? Do you want a significant life? So I just found myself say to the Lord, I, I want to be significant. I, I want my life to count. And so she took the decision and contacted the people back in Italy and said, I'll come. I know there's no support, but I'll come. Within a week of that decision, a couple of the church miles away, further down the lake from where we were, heard about what she was doing and came to her and said, we're going to underwrite all your costs for the next three years as you go back to Italy. She went back and God has blessed her work. That may sound dramatic, but friends, it happens. It happens. When we seek first God's kingdom, we open our lives to the possibility of miracles. Some of us look and say, oh, those things happened at the time of the book of Acts. They happen today. But in order to see them happen, we need to learn to be less self-sufficient and more God-dependent. As I was uh, putting my notes together, I was just reminded about that 
phrase that Jesus uses, that the pagans run after all these things. He's not being rude when he says pagans. He's talking literally about people who have no space for God, knowledge of God, understanding of God. And uh, I was thinking, at the time that we're living, there are a lot of folk who are anxious. I don't minimise that at all. They are worried. We know that the rise in the use of food banks tells us that. And we hear the most amazing, horrendous stories about how families are just looking into the future and not knowing how they can cope. And I know, as a, someone who's been a pastor of a church, this is a, a trumpet call for church. It's a trumpet call for us to get involved in people's lives with compassion, with empathy, showing prayer and practical help, leading by example. Thank God for people who run food banks and uh, cooking food for the hungry, uh, those who are involved in with counselling like CAP, um, Action Against Poverty. And this is a real trumpet call for us as a church to get involved because there are people around who feel hopeless. Not long ago I was driving out of a church car park. I uh, picked up the pastor, we were going off to a meeting together. And uh, as we drove out of the car park, a lady crossed over pushing a buggy and uh, had two little ones hanging onto the side of it. And he just waved. And I said, is, is that a member of your church? She said, well, actually, it's wonderful. She had a lady who's only come to us in the last few months. He said, uh, the story is quite incredible. Her little girl, and he pointed, a little girl of about seven or eight, had gone to the shop uh, in the in the town, the village where they lived, and she'd picked up some milk and some bread, and she'd just got a handful of coins, and she thought she had enough, but when the lady at the, the till began to count it up, she didn't, and it was one of those awfully awkward moments. And the person behind her in the queue was a church member, who just simply said, look, don't worry, put your money away, and paid for the bill. Then said to the little girl as she went out, where's mummy? And mummy was in a, a, a refuge for women who'd been lifted out because of violence in the home. So she went along the road and met the mum in this secluded place. She, for safety, she'd been moved. And discovered that although the counsellor put her there, there was nothing, absolutely nothing, in, in the room at all. So that's why the little girl had gone out to get some, some basics. So she was able to say to her, come down to our church, we've got a thing called the Lord's Larder, and we'll be able to look after you through that. And just through that simple act of a church member seeing a child embarrassed and not being able to pay a bill, that opened a link, it opened a relationship. The church were able to reach out and help. They were able to offer real practical help. I suddenly realised, you know, that's why that lady's coming to church. She's found a family. Not a handout, but she's actually found a family. And friends all around us over the next few months as we go through winter, there are people who need to find a family and to discover a God who cares about the practical things in life. So my word to you today is, it's a personal word for where we are, but it's a personal word too about days of opportunity and democracy. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would allow your word to dwell in us, to uh, 
as Ruth prayed earlier, enter our hearts and our minds. Help us to read, mark, learn and inwardly digest your word. And help us as we move out into a new week to have eyes that are open. Help us not to get consumed with anxiety. And help us not to become blind to the needs of those around us. But use us, Lord Jesus, for your sake and for your glory. Amen. We're going to sing a wonderful song.